Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Had yourself a good thing. You were too blind to see. Collecting idle gossip. Well, let me tell you, you just lost me. Listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. You're listening to a clip of I Don't Want to Hear It by Lisa Bialis. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> that was very forceful, Steve. <laughs> Thank you. I just don't want to hear it. Well, she's our featured Ohio musical artist tonight, so stick around to the end of the podcast. We're going to tell you a little bit more about her and let you hear the rest of that song. But right now, let's throw another log on the fire, campers. co-host Steve Yoder, and with me is our researcher and storyteller, Paula Schleiss, an award-winning journalist who spent 30 years telling these kinds of stories for the Akron Beacon Journal. Hi, everyone. Steve, we've gotten quite a few great ideas for mysteries from our listeners, and you know, one of the most popular topics people ask us to investigate is the legend behind strange creatures that are said to inhabit their region. There are many areas in Ohio that have a very specific cryptid tied to it. You know what a cryptid is? I'm throwing out a fancy word. Well, I always known cryptoids as, you know, like the Jersey Devil. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Stuff like that. Basically, it's a species that is unsubstantiated. So you can toss in everything from Bigfoot to the Loch Ness Monster. Last year, we did a story on the Minerva Monster, a really compelling case for a Bigfoot-type being that residents of Minerva were reporting to police. But we haven't done much more on that sort of thing. Well, it's October. Yep. Yeah. It's time. So, so for Halloween, let's tackle some of the origin stories of the beasts that have been woven into our Ohio upbringing. Tonight, I've got two to tell you about. Ooh, Good. In Lake County, have you ever heard of the melon heads? Um, no, I've heard of lemon heads. I've eaten those plenty of times. Lemon, when I was a yeah, kid. you're not going to eat these things. <laughs> okay. Yeah, the, the melon heads are a very big thing up there. It, it's one of these rites of passages. When you reach a certain age, you have to go out and search for the melon heads. And huh. we've got a great armchair detective tonight who has done just that. Awesome. So I'm going to tell you about the melon heads. And in Summit County, there's the myth of the Kenmore grass man. Oh, I've never heard of this. What? I've never heard How of this. How can you have not heard of? the Kenmore Grassman. I lived in Kenmore when I was a Actually, kid. Actually, there was a, a, you did. Mm-hmm. 
actually, there was a point where the grass man started gaining some traction, and I'll get into that okay. when I tell you. Even though his history goes back decades, right. uh, he only really kind of became well-known. It isn't uh, the guy on the corner selling the grass. It's <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> Who knows? There are some say it's a very hairy vagrant, so it might okay. be. But let, let's start with the melon heads, because I had not heard of these guys. But everybody I know now that is in that area, they're like, oh, yeah, the melon heads. So I had to search for the term melon heads, and I got a fun variety of things. I, I found clubs exclusively for bald men. I found a festival that was looking for bald men who were <laughs> willing to have an artist paint their noggins to look like honeydews and cantaloupes. I found several sports teams that called themselves melon heads. And I found sports writers referring to intoxicated belligerent fans as melon heads. Hmm. Uh, I found food writers referencing people who like to eat melons, a robotics team in Dayton that once called itself the melon heads, and editorial cartoonists for whom melonhead often referred to bad drivers. Okay, but no band named Melonheads from Ohio who can send us a clip of any music they have? Melonheads would be a great band That would name, be a great one. And I'm not saying it's not out there, because okay. frankly, it might be. And if you're a band trying to start something in Ohio, hey, I, we have the name for you. We'll, we'll give it to you. <laughs> Copyright good. free. There you go. But in Ohio's Lake County, melonheads means one thing only. It refers to something straight out of science fiction, the urban legend of humanoids with bulbous heads who live in the woods around Kirtland. Now, this story isn't unique to Ohio. Michigan claims its own melonheads living in Ottawa County. That tale is said to have grown out of an asylum that once treated children with water on the brain. You know the official term for that? Uh, no. Hydrocephalus. Oh, that was my next guest after I, I don't know. I knew it was on the tip of your tongue. <laughs> the children there uh, were said to have escaped and turned feral. Connecticut also claimed a variation of this story. One tale says an asylum burned to the ground and patients that survived escaped to the woods and developed hydrocephalus as a result of inbreeding over generations of sticking together in the wild. In Ohio, the melon heads, it is said, also live in the woods. They've been seen in different areas, most often around Kirtland. And the origin story always begins with a mysterious 19th century figure called Dr. Crow. Oh, of course there's got to be Dr. some kind Crow. of weird doctor name yeah. in this. Okay. Well, the, and the name is spelled differently. So if you go looking for this guy, some stories have it C-R-O-W, C-R-O-W-E, K-R-O-H-E, and K-R-O-H. Oh. But by any spelling, the lore is that Crow had custody of several Orphanage. And he was a doctor. So. He, and he was a doctor. Now, this, this here's the fun thing about this. At this point, you can choose either a bad Dr. Crow or a good Dr. Crow, mm. depending on what direction. Remember those books where you would like reach the end of the chapter and it would let you choose which direction which to path go? path to go, yeah. I'm going to let you choose here, oh, okay. okay? I'm going to give you both, though. In the bad story, the youngsters already had a head start on disfigurement. They were suffering from hydrocephalus when Dr. Crow was able to acquire them through nefarious means, either kidnapping or maybe a deal with a local mental hospital. And he subjected them to bizarre experiments that caused their heads to swell even further. The children eventually rose up against their tormentor, burning the orphanage to the ground, 
killing Dr. Crow and living out their lives in the surrounding forested area. If you prefer a kinder, gentler Dr. Crow, the story is that he and his wife were living in an isolated cabin in the woods when they agreed to take in children who suffered from hydrocephalus and were being bullied by mean-spirited people. To protect the children, Mrs. Crow kept the children isolated and away from the outside world, and they turned to her and the doctor for all their needs. But alas, as people are wont to do, Mrs. Crow eventually grew older and died. The children couldn't cope. In their grief, they wailed about the house and at one point knocked over a lit kerosene lantern. The cabin caught fire and Dr. Crow and the children died in the flames. Now, of course, if you adopt this story, then what you're seeing are not the children themselves. You're seeing their ghosts. But Whichever story you want to choose, the most Melonhead sightings happen along Wisner Road in Kirtland and Chardon Township. Some have said they've spotted them off King Memorial Road, especially near a cemetery there. It's a persistent enough story that a movie called Legend of the Melonheads was released in 2010. And there have got to be a dozen or more web pages devoted to people's encounters with the large bald-headed humanoids. Over the years, the story of the Melonheads has evolved. One retelling blames the government, saying there was a secret testing being done on humans in some distant decade. The resulting Melonheads were cared for in a secret location in the Lake County woods, where they were well taken care of, making them a very passive bunch. But once in a while, one of them would grow restless, wander away from their isolated location, and come into contact with people in the outside world. Despite the part of the legend about the Melonheads killing their doctor, that was the bad story, the little people are almost always associated with being docile, slow, and fearful of people. Whichever story you prefer, if you live in the area, you probably know someone who knows someone who saw a Melonhead. Like I said, it's become a rite of passage for teens of driving age to take a spin and go look for them. So the question remains, how did the story even get started? You know, I'm, I'm kind of proud of how we have always managed to find some kind of story to tie these urban legends to. Oh, we have, yeah, absolutely. We yeah. have another one in this one? Oh, gosh. Right about now, I would so love to whip out some kind of news story or event from the past that inspired this lore. But sadly, I haven't been able to track down anything really definitive, only more secondhand accounts. One thing that intrigued me into thinking there was something going on with a Dr. Crow is there's an internet image out there that someone posted on the website Dead Ohio showing a stone with Dr. Crow etched into it. The stone looks pretty authentically aged, and the cut line said, here is a picture of a stone marker that used to be on Wisner Road in front of Dr. Crow's driveway in Kirtland, Ohio. It is in Mentor on the Lake, Ohio now. Now, I don't know who put this up there. It sounded genuine, um, and it seems to be some evidence that there was a Dr. Crow in the area. But I, I couldn't find a Dr. Crow in Kirtland or any indication that someone of that name had lived there. Another guy by the name of Jay who posted on the internet said he looked for evidence of a Dr. Crow and found a dentist by that name living in Kirtland in the 1940s. 
Jay, by the way, was one of the many people who, in their youth, went trolling for the melon heads. He said his first experience with them was on the east branch of the Chagrin River, where he was driving along Mitchell's Mills and caught a quick flash out of the corner of his eye, an image that caused him to scream. If you Google melon heads in Ohio, you'll come across all kinds of these kinds of stories posted by melon head hunters. I found a guy named Paul who said his classmates from Wycliffe High School told him in the 1960s they took a drive down a country road looking for them one day and spotted one who took off running into the woods. As the story goes, his friends followed deep into the woods and found an old farmhouse with a middle-aged couple sitting on the porch, surrounded by large-headed children. The man told the students he had been a nuclear scientist during World War II and that radiation caused all of his children to be born disfigured. He said the government paid him to stay in his secluded farmhouse away from prying eyes. Paul said he and other friends after this story had been told to them, went to have a look for themselves, but they were stopped by cops who gave them a stern lecture about chasing fantasies before taking them to the police station to call their parents for a ride. Paul said the reaction from the cops convinced him and his friends that the melon heads were real. Of all the stories I read on the web, here was one that was kind of intriguing. A woman who identified herself as a registered nurse working in Warrensville Heights recounted a story from 2005 that has her believing in melon heads. She said she got off work at midnight and went out with friends to celebrate her birthday. She had a long drive home, and on the way she needed a restroom, so she pulled over at a nice-looking bar in Troy. It was the only business open at that hour. She had passed it many times before, and it appeared rather safe, so she felt safe stopping. She counted seven people inside, almost all of them appearing a bit intoxicated. The restroom was occupied, so she had a seat at the bar to wait, and everyone was very chatty, wishing her happy birthday, even bought her a drink. And since she'd always heard about the melon heads living in Chardon Woods, she thought she'd make conversation about them. So she said to the intoxicated barflies, Hey, don't the melon heads live around here? She said the laughing and chatting in the bar ceased at once. The mood changed, and for 30 seconds, nobody said a word. Then someone said, no, that's all made up. She said the bar patrons immediately changed the subject, but as she left shortly after that, she couldn't help but thinking the people in the bar were believers too. Hello, my name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. In each bite-sized episode, I'll dive into my original research to bring you intriguing historical curiosities you've probably never heard of, uncovering the fascinating stories that have shaped our world from forgotten figures to overlooked events. And the best part? I've condensed all this historical goodness into manageable chunks, perfect for your on-the-go lifestyle. Whether you're commuting to work or squeezing in a quick break, History Shorts fits into the little time you probably think you don't have. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts. Anyway, I have seen suggestions that the story may have had its roots 
in a local family with a mentally disabled child who used to stand outside his home. That simple image may have been all it took for creative imaginations to spin the tale of the docile melon heads. So, what do you think? You want to go look for him? Absolutely. I, I, I like that tale. You like that sure. tale? Well, let's see if you like the next one, because this one comes from your hometown and your old neighborhood, our second story tonight. Steve, did you know when it comes to Bigfoot sightings, Ohio ranks fifth in the United States and sixth in North America? Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, we are a big place for Bigfoot sightings. And in one of the stories, a creature that has reached celebrity status is called the Kenmore Grassman. Now, this one kind of fascinates me because Kenmore is a dense residential neighborhood. Yeah, there's not a lot of woods there. No, I mean, it's extremely odd that a Bigfoot legend would grow out of basically the inner city. That may be why some think the story more likely was inspired by sightings of a large and hairy vagrant. But among believers, the grass man with half a century of sightings to his credit is too large to be a man. He's reportedly anywhere from seven to nine feet tall with black or brown to reddish hair, a muscular build, broad shoulders, and large hands and feet. Most of the sightings, as soon as I mention this, you're going to say, oh, that's where he could be. Most of the sightings have been in an area off Manchester Road where land runs alongside the remnants of an old 19th century canal. Oh, that's where you can be. <laughs> there yeah. you go. Uh, the land is now a popular hiking route called the Towpath Trail, with a canal on one side, but on the other side, lots of swampy land. There is a lot of swamp Tall back there. grasses. Yeah, I walk that trail a lot. And there's a lot of area back there where you don't see any buildings right. or anything. If there else. was a man, a grass man, he'd, he'd definitely if be If he wanted there. to live back there, he could probably Absolutely. stay out of sight. Now, the grass man went from being whispers among some of the locals to a bona fide legend in 1995. That's pretty recent. Yeah. When some Bigfoot researchers from Cincinnati came to Akron to check out the claims and publicize their finds. Best I can tell, they are the ones who named it the Kenmore Grassman. Oh, okay. Now, one resident had told these investigators that he saw the creature in 1988. He had a very specific memory of it and that it easily weighed 300 pounds. Although I think if it's nine feet tall, I'm or even seven That's feet. That's pretty thin. I'm thinking he's, yeah, yeah, he must have been on a diet. You know, not getting a lot of food right. in Kenmore. <laughs> All right. Another person told the investigators he had seen it throughout his childhood, usually went on fishing expeditions along the canal. Now, after spending an afternoon in Akron, the investigators took home with them a cast of a three-toed foot that they couldn't identify and photos of an igloo-shaped shelter constructed of branches, brush, and grass that they pondered might have been the grass man's home. I saw the picture, and it seems clear to me that it was man-made or at least man-gathered. Would it be big enough for... uh a humanoid that big? Um, you know, maybe if he slept like a potato bug, huh? all curled okay. up, he right. probably could have fit in there. Now, Kenmore's representative of the Bigfoot species has made appearances in modern media. He's in a book called Bigfoot in Ohio, Encounters with the Grassman by Christopher L. Murphy, and in an old History Channel series called Monster Quest. But I got to warn you, if you hear the word grassman, 
it appears now it may not always be just Ken Moore's creature. From what I can tell, the name Grassman is now being used by a lot of people to describe any Bigfoot appearance in the eastern half of Ohio. So we let Cincinnati people tell us what the name of our Bigfoot is. Best I can figure out, they're the ones who came up with the name. But also, it appears they may be the very first to have taken it seriously and actually tried to investigate it rather than, eek, something I don't understand, and running away from it and letting it go. Because I would probably call them Toxic Man or something. That's where a lot of companies dump their (laughs) their stuff. It's in those little canals. And, you know, just now, Summit Lake became safe to fish in and... That all connects all the way to Nesmith Lake, and you that was so dangerous right. to fish into. You're absolutely right. I like I like Toxic Man. I like Toxic, toxic Man beast. as well. Toxic. We got to come up with an alliteration there, <laughs> right? Toxic tarantula. Oh, he wasn't a tarantula. No. Anyway, I like it. Yeah. I like it, Steve. All right. Well, let's see what our armchair detective has to say. Tonight's armchair detective is Lindsay Smith from Hudson, Ohio. Hi, Lindsay. Hi, Paula and Steve. Hey, why don't you tell our listeners about yourself? Sure. So as you mentioned, I live in Hudson, Ohio with my family. And um, by day, I am marketing and public relations manager for Summit Metro Parks, which is really exciting. Oh, this course, is so tonight, perfect I'm, for you. I'm just speaking for myself tonight, not not for them, but it's it's a great job and um, excited to be here. We will clarify that, especially when we, we when we get to discussing the Camel Grass Man, you are not speaking yeah, as start, an official Metro Parks person. about crazy things. They, yes. They don't think it's, no, I'm just kidding. It's not the Metro Parks people. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, Lindsay. You know, working in PR, you got to say it. You got to be careful. Yeah. I now you have gone looking for the melon heads. I have. I have. It's kind of this classic coming of age excursion that, you know, I think a lot of people may have had. So, um I can I can tell you about my experience. Tell us. How old were you? So this is one of those things I, you know, I hope my mom is never listening to this because I was probably saying that I was at somebody's house and we went out with some older kids um, looking for these melon heads. I think I was probably, you know, late middle school, early high school age. So I was probably 14 or 15 and I was definitely with some kids that were older, definitely could drive. So, you know, maybe 16, 17 year olds that were sort of friend of a friend. And so I got kind of, I feel like a little bit roped into it. Um, and I was really scared. I mean, I, I think, you know, growing up, you believe in Santa Claus, you believe in a lot of things. And so you tend to have this, um, there's this tendency toward believing these tales. So we headed out, um, in his, in this guy's car and the melon heads are um, supposedly on Wisner road. And so we drive down this road and I remember driving over this beautiful bridge, which there's a lot of photos on the internet and, so you can see this bridge. So we kind of parked right before this bridge, which is right in the vicinity of the woods where the, the melon heads are supposed to be lurking. And some of my friends got out of the car and I was very timid and kind of hung back and I'm walking along with them. And all of a sudden I do see something coming out of the trees ahead of us. What? I think there was maybe, so like there was some white, like somebody was wearing white 
hops out of a tree. And of course the people I'm with just come screaming and we're like running back to the car and hightail it out of there. But truly I think that what we ran into, cause there was a lot of other cars there. I think some other kids were just playing, playing play it around. I think, I think there were some kids playing around. I mean, certainly I didn't see any actual melon heads. There was no indication of melon heads, but there certainly were a lot of vehicles, a lot of teenagers around. So my thought is that that's probably what we ran into, but it sure made for an eventful night and something I still remember. Now, and, is um, there a particular place where kids park? And I mean, I don't want to send people on a private property, but is there a particular place where people congregate to do their looking? I think it's kind of right where I mentioned on Wisner Road is a very beautiful drive. It's really secluded. And then you kind of come to this bridge, which, um, you know, before uh, recording today, I, I was doing a little bit of research in the area because this has been a long time since I was that age and doing this. So it's a little fuzzy. And when I saw pictures of where the melon heads are supposed to be on Wisner Road, it instantly hit me like that's absolutely where we were when I went. And so I, you know, I couldn't describe it because I'm horrible with directions, but I, I would say it's Wisner Road and then there's this beautiful bridge, um, which I guess in my reading I also discovered is part of another mystery, which is it's allegedly one of the crybaby bridges where you hear oh, yeah. crying or babies crying under it. So I hadn't heard that one before, but there is on one of the websites, I can't remember exactly which site it was, there was kind of a disclaimer that said that, you know, there's a lot of private properties in that area and they don't particularly like folks kind of right. around down there. So I think it's one of those things where they, they do just kind of encourage people to be respectful and cautious. As I mentioned, I don't I don't quite know the area like it was when I went, but, you know, that was like, gosh. Yeah. I, years ago yeah, we, we definitely <laughs> want to stress that. I would say if you don't want somebody coming onto your property looking for melon heads, <laughs> do one to others as you would have <laughs> yeah, done do unto you. So absolutely. Yeah. You know, I am a little confused about this Dr. Crow because Dr. Crow is in, an, is in all the stories. And there seems to have been a Dr. Crow living in that area. Had you any indication that he was a real person? I had no idea. And I think the way you put it was perfect in that you either have this evil Dr. Crow or you have this kind Dr. Crow. And I don't know which it could have been or, or if it, if it even was, but you know, that name certainly was associated with all the tales as I'm sure you saw in your research, there's a lot of different spellings. So I think that makes it a little tricky with that name, just wow. phonetically, you know, I, I don't know anything specifically about that person, but like I said, it's, it's always that name that comes back to being a part of the story. And it's just hard to put your finger on really kind of what to make of that. I, I thought it was very interesting that finally somebody did find the, the record of a crow. They found the, the headstone and some information about somebody that was living in the vicinity. So, um, it was that, a Dr. Crow. My, <laughs> I think um, there was that headstone that showed some kind of a crow. Right. I don't even know what that was. It it did kind of look like a stone that might be part of... If I've done a lot of research in cemeteries, and sometimes you have a 
big stone that is your family name. Right, to kind of indicate the whole the whole family there. Yes. And then next to the big stone, you have all these little stones with first right. names. It would be weird, I think, to say Dr. Crow on one of the small ones. So I just I didn't even know what I was looking at when I saw that online. It was just like, this is a real stone, and it's really got yeah, the name on it. it's clearly a stone. And the person said that it was from what? That it was up in Menor in the lake? Yeah. Under on the lake? Then I didn't understand why it was moved and what it was moved to. Right. It just, there wasn't a lot of clarity there. There was not there. a lot of information there. And I didn't see that. I mean, I didn't get to the site that, that had that on there. So I didn't see it myself. You know, as you wrote it, really, it's like, well, here's the time I like to say that I found something historical to like maybe back this up. And really, there's nothing. So, um, that's really what I was really interested in because, you know, I have so much faith in the research that you do that I was just so curious to see what you would find related to the story. And I so, was so uh, disappointed. I really wanted to find something yeah. good. A lot of times you can. There's a kernel of truth out there sure, that everything... Sure, that there's something. And I just really struck out, but... I really believe it, it could have been some local child mm-hmm. that may have had, you know, an unfortunate condition. Yes. And then it just kind of grew over the years. I could see right. that happening. Right. When you went searching for the melon heads, what was your idea of what they were supposed to be like? Were they supposed to be dangerous or docile? Or do you remember when you were a kid? You said you were scared to go look, but is that the story you were being told that they were dangerous? Yeah, I think I think that I was led to believe that they were more of like a goblin type creature. Um, you know, I don't remember having a whole lot of specific information, but it was something that freaked me out for sure. So I don't know if it was simply the description of, hey, there's these little mutant things and whether they're nice or not, they're like lurking around in the woods. And, um, you know, so I think in and of itself, even if they were nice, that's kind of a creepy, you know, a little bit of a creepy scene. So I was really scared about that, but I seem to remember hearing from, from kids that it was more of like, you got to be careful. Like they'll come get you and they're, they're after you kind of thing. So I guess I heard the tale that was a little bit more like maybe a little more sinister. Got it. When you look online and you read the encounters that people say they've had with these, there's so many people who really believe they exist. And I try to be open-minded about things like Bigfoot, you know, I don't know. You know, if if you were to bring me some proof, maybe there's something out there we haven't seen yet. But I have a hard time believing that there are children suffering from water on the brain or anybody out there <laughs> just living in the woods for decades on their own, what eating off the land and nobody ever being able to document their existence. It's really hard to believe this one. But I think so, too. People are sure, when you read their encounters, they are so sure of it. Yeah, that's that's very interesting to me because I agree with you. I mean, I I try to look at things logically, within, but with an open mind, you know? I try to be skeptical, but yet keep that open mind to, you know, maybe there are some things that we just don't understand yet. But 
I think when it comes to this story, it really is one of those things that probably evolved over the years and kind of like how kids go out cow tipping in small towns or they go do, you know, X or Y or Z just to entertain themselves. Like this just might be one of those stories that keeps people occupied and and keeps them busy and keeps the imagination hungry. Um, And I, I just... I have a hard time seeing how it it works, you know, unless we're talking about ghosts. I mean, if if it's like an apparition type thing, maybe, maybe there's something to that, but that doesn't sound like what people describe. So it's interesting to me that there's so many people, or at least a, a decent amount of people who claim to have had their own encounters and they just swear by them and they can describe them with a lot of detail. Because I think with with any creature type story, that's what I always come back to is, you know, what are people's incentives to make something like that up? I think that's what really gets me when things defy logic and we can't really find any proof. The Battle of Waterloo was one of the most famous turning points in world history. But what happened next? My name's David Montgomery, and I'm the host of The Siecla, a history podcast that tackles exactly that. Join me as I cover France's overlooked century in between Napoleon and World War I. The Siècle, spelled S-I-E-C-L-E, is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and can be found wherever you get podcasts. Yet people are saying, I saw this thing and it scared me and I, you know, it's something that they completely you know, live by and will repeat and write online. I just don't know that that there's like a compelling reason for that many people to make stories like that up that are that consistent. So I think that that is what kind of keeps me stringing along a little bit, you know, like just a little bit. It keeps me very interested, but I'm kind of with you. I I think for this one, you know, of, of all the things that maybe are a little out there that you could get yourself believing, this one's probably a little bit of a stretch. And really, I mean, if you think about it, like you said, if, the, if there's somebody that may have had a condition or there maybe were a few children that were living in a residence at one point that had a condition, I think especially back in the 50s or, you know, earlier decades when, as you mentioned in the Athens Asylum episode, there were some, there were some very questionable treatment of people with conditions and, and people in the public, I think, it weren't so open-minded. So I could see how that would be the origin of, of something that would get a little bit twisted. Whoever, whoever came up with this story, they definitely had some good reasons for it happening. So right. we'll give them credit for that. Yes. You know what I have even a harder time believing in than the melon heads? And that, that is a Bigfoot living in inner city Akron. <laughs> So let's go to the Kenmore Grassman because I got to I got to ask you. A, a lot of people haven't heard this one in Bigfoot circles. He's known, but had you ever heard of the Kenmore Grassman before? You know, I had not. We've mentioned I, I grew up in Chardon, and so was really largely unfamiliar with the Akron area until more recent times. So I've been in the area working for close to 10 years now. And in the 10 years that I've been around, I have not heard of that one, not in that area. And, and even folks that, you know, tell me things from my uh, employment, you know, I, sometimes I hear some of these stories. I, I just had not heard that one. Did you bring it up to your 
fellow co-workers at the Summit County Metro Parks after you heard about I didn't, this episode? Although I do have a I do have a coworker who is particularly interested in, in the Bigfoot phenomenon. And so I probably should have gotten um, that take on things, but I did not bring it up. I should have. Now, We've had some inquiries and, and uh, whatnot before um, from the public or um, you know, a few people that in the nearby national park, I think, feel that they have either seen or heard some things. So it's not uncommon to the area to have folks claiming that they've had these types of encounters. But specifically this one in that area, I just hadn't heard it. Now, the Caga Valley National Park, I could see that being an area where something could hide for a while anyhow. I mean, it's huge. What is it, like 20,000 acres or something? It's big. It's something like that, yeah. It's big. Um, But knowing what you know of the towpath trail that goes through Kenmore and that kind of grassy, swampy area, Mm -hmm. I I mean, you're familiar with it. Yes. How long could something live in there and not be documented? Well, the towpath trail is a very popular multi-use trail, and there's almost always somebody on that trail. So I have a hard time believing that something could hide that easily without being seen unless it was especially elusive, which I suppose maybe this type of creature is especially elusive, but it would be a stretch. It would be a stretch. And and really, you know, the, the whole Bigfoot thing, I really like to keep an open mind, as I mentioned, but I saw um, there was a professor from College of Worcester, um, who had presented in rural Ohio about Bigfoot and basically on, on the scientific grounds that there's really no way that this creature could exist because, you know, you would need a lot of different individuals for it to be able to mate and survive. And it would need, you know, we would have found remains and a lot more just physical evidence of it. So, I mean, I'm sure there's groups out there that claim that they do have those kinds of things. I don't know. I mean, I'm not really integrated enough into the the Bigfoot community to have the insight as to what, what may or may not be out there as far as evidence, but it seems like the main evidence is sightings and just personal accounts. And, you know, every once in a while they say they have footprints, but, you know, isn't that something that you would think that you would see a little more of is, is more of that physical evidence. It is hard to imagine as many people as there are who are camping, fishing, hiking, running, that there would be more encounters of people who are not necessarily hunt, you know, Bigfoot hunters. I can understand there's yeah. a small core of people who go out looking for them, but you would think there would be a lot more of just normal people. Not, not that Bigfoot hunters are not normal. I know some yeah. of them. They're great people. They're super passionate. <laughs> I mean, normal in the sense that they are not out there looking for it. You would think there we'll would be more non-believers. <laughs> uh, you would think that there would be more of them just coming across evidence of them, and you don't. But I will say, I'm not shutting the door on Bigfoot. I don't know what's going on. I'm super open-minded. So I agree. But I'm with Bigfoot you. I'm in Akron, that. 
I don't know. I think I'm going to have to close the door on both the Melonheads and, and the Kenmore Grass, man. I, yeah. I hate we to be that be. definitive, but... <laughs> I know. Yeah. I know. I, I hate to be definitive on it, too. Every year, I see a story about some major species that has been discovered that has never been seen before. Every year I see it, and it's something that scientists have documented, taken pictures of, have the corpse of. So for that reason, I could never completely shut the door on, on a lot of things, but... I think yeah, this too. I, this, yep. this, these two are tough cells. <laughs> yep, that, that's exactly. I, I talked to my husband about that, and that's his take too. You know, there's so much, like, at this point in human history, we like to think, well, you know, science says, and then we know that X, Y, Z, and it's just impossible. But think about how many times in the past that people may have felt that way about certain things. And there were some huge breakthroughs. I mean, even as huge as the Earth being round, you know, I mean... There are some things out there that we just might not understand, and I, I don't know what it is about, like, if it's a human ego thing that we just think that we know it all, but I just like to stay in the camp that there's always something that we don't know still that, that we have yet to discover. So, Good point. Um, you know, it, it really it, wasn't that long ago that people thought that you would fall off the edge of the earth if you just... Right, right. What, that was Columbus's day, right? What was that, right. Five, 500, 600 years ago? Today, um, are we forgetting about the flat earthers here? <laughs> are there still flat earthers? There's, so yeah. <laughs> but you know me, I just I think I think it's the shape of a donut actually with the hole in the middle. Oh, we're doing it with the hole. Yeah. What is in that hole? What's in that hole? That's the right. big mystery. That's right, <laughs> Lindsay. This has been so much fun. Thank you for joining us tonight. Thanks for having me. Well, that's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news clippings, and more on this and every episode, hop on over to our website, ohiomysteries.com. And that brings us to tonight's featured Ohio musical artist. Lisa Bialis is a singer out of Oxford, Ohio. And again, this is our second time spotlighting her. You can find her on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or search for her YouTube channel. Lots of videos there. Better yet, just head on over to her website and you'll get all the information you need. LisaBialis.com. That's Bialis is B-I-A-L-E-S. At the start of the podcast, we played a clip of her song, I Don't Want to Hear It, but you Come do want to hear it. <laughs> say, say it with oomph. I don't want to hear it. There you go. That's all right. Better. Well, here's the rest of that song. Enjoy. And we'll see you here next week for another episode of Ohio Mysteries.
Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II, each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from.